Today's reading is uh, there are two. One from Genesis 12, the whole chapter, and um, the next reading is uh, in Hebrews 11. And um, Genesis 12 is on um, page 13 of the Church Bibles. The Call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a fam famine, famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, 
Here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. The next reading is Hebrews 11. It's on page 1209. Hebrews 11. And it's verses 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own, If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, um, if you'd like to keep the Hebrews passage open, actually, because that's, I wanted the Genesis um, passage to be read for some background, but I think the Hebrews um, passage is where we're going to spend most of our time, so it's probably better if you keep that one open. Can I give a a shout out to the tech team here? It's very impressive. I was... um, I was asked on email, did I want to do a PowerPoint? And I said no. And that's partly because I don't trust <laughs> PowerPoints. I don't really trust technology. I'm a bit of a dinosaur uh, like that. But I, have, um, I don't preach that often. But when I preached away, sometimes the, the idea of a PowerPoint would have been a very difficult concept for them. And therefore, I'd have been relying on it, and the whole thing would have been a struggle. Um, but your live streaming and stuff is very impressive. Um, and I know we've all got better at it because of COVID. But I can give you an example of a church I was at where I saw a chap in the corner doing something, and there was, there was definitely no PowerPoint or anything. And um, he was recording me on a cassette tape, which they then passed round to the people who weren't there. And um, so if you missed it, you probably had to wait three months before the cassette tape got to you. Uh, so just a shout out to you. Thank you. Um, OK, let's pray, and then we'll get stuck in. Father, thank you for your word. 
Uh, thank you for the way you speak to us today from this ancient book. It is still relevant. It still meets us where we're at. Uh, we pray, Lord, this um, morning that you will uh, take these words and um, by your spirit put them in our hearts and our minds. Help us to uh, listen for your voice in our life. And Lord, may we leave here this morning wanting to be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have, you may have heard this sort of um, comment before, but we all exercise faith in something pretty much every day, don't we? You know, if, you, if you're going down the A3, you go past the Chessington bit, and it opens up and you hit 70, and then you're, you're exercising faith that only a few miles later on when you get to the mess of the M25 junction uh, and you put your foot on the brake, the car will slow. You know, if you visit the doctor and they give you some tablets, then you're exercising faith that firstly he or she knows what they're doing and secondly that the manufacturer of the tablet has done it properly, that he hasn't put stuff in it or you know, got it wrong in some way. Actually, it, it, that reminds me when I think of medicine. <laughs> I, was, I always get dates wrong. I'm going to say 18 months ago. Catherine will probably tell me later. It was, I don't know, two and a half years ago or something. But there was a period of time, a little while ago, I was sitting in Kingston Hospital. I was having a biopsy. Um, if I tell you that everyone there was a middle-aged man or older, you might be able to guess what was being biopsied, but it's not really relevant for the story. Um, but I'm sitting in, in those hospital, one of those hospital gowns in this little cubicle, and outside was the nurse's station. And I heard the anaesthetist come along to the nurse and say, OK, we're ready to start now. Um, is it the guy in bed 11 who's having, where we're taking a little bit of his liver at the same time? And there was a pause, and the nurse said, no, no, I think it's the chap in 14. <laughs> and my faith in the system was beginning to erode at this point. And all I'm doing is looking at what number am I <laughs> and thinking, cool, you've got to get this right. But of course, I went ahead with the procedure because I don't know any better, do I? I trusted them in the end. And it's the same. I don't know how brake systems work in cars. But usually when I press it, you slow down. I don't know how doctors are trained or anything about medicine, but usually when I take the tablet, I get better. I guess surgeons would be struck off by now if they were removing all sorts of bits from us that they weren't supposed to. Our life of experience leads us to have faith in certain things. Therefore, I think we tend to want to see, don't we, and touch and experience before we trust something. It's why in, in scripture, I think, we see Thomas, you know, the other, the, the other apostles come and tell Thomas that they've seen the risen Christ. And in John chapter 20 and verse 25, Thomas says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. He needed the experience for himself. And so Jesus appears to him. And as soon as Thomas gets to put his finger where the nails went, he immediately declares his faith. My Lord and my God, he says. He has faith because he experienced meeting the risen Jesus for himself. But what does Jesus say about that? It's only a few verses later on, verse 29 of John 10, 20. 
Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what Jesus is describing there, and actually what chapter 11 of Hebrews is all about, is about a faith not based on touch and sight. It's something called, often called saving faith. So it's a belief or a trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour when you've never physically met him. We rely, don't we, on his death on a cross to take the punishment for our sin, but we weren't there to see it. It's a faith that means we believe Jesus rose from the dead, when again we didn't see that, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, but we haven't been to heaven. It's an amazing thing. Faith not through sight and experience and touch. The nation of Israel here has, has got themselves into a situation with the law of God and then they, if you remember they add pages and pages of extra laws and rules and religious practices where basically they've transformed their faith into a belief system of good works and religious practice really. That's what they're relying on. They want to add something from themselves to their righteousness. They want to earn their righteousness. And so to a large extent, the letter of Hebrews has the goal of outlining to Jewish Christians that they left all that behind. You mustn't go back to that. You don't need to go back to that. All you need is the death of Christ on the cross for your salvation. So in chapter 10, um, back one on Hebrews, uh, he talks a lot about justification by faith, which is a swap. I'm sure you know this, but, you know, it's, we're made right with God by way of a swap. Jesus taking the punishment for our sin, that's called atonement, and us taking upon ourselves his righteousness. That's called imputed righteousness or inferred righteousness. But both are very important. So listen to chapter 10, verse 10. It says this, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, did you hear the little word there that's crucial? We've been made holy. It doesn't say we've been forgiven. We have, but that's not enough. We've been made holy. We're righteous in the eyes of God because of what Christ did on the cross, nothing else. So the writer, having explained that and said, we're made holy through the cross, then in chapter 11, goes back in history and basically gives us a whole series of people, heroes of the faith, it's commonly known as, justified, not by undertaking a series of works like the Jews would have been thinking, not by undertaking a series of religious duties, of cleansings, but by the sort of faith we're talking about this morning. And we need to look at those heroes. Um, when, when I got back from Fulham in a not very good mood yesterday afternoon, um, my wife was watching the memorial service for Tim Keller. If any of you know or have heard of Tim Keller, a uh, you know, New York preacher. And um, the memorial service was this week on, on YouTube, and she was watching this and um, had followed, uh, followed it. And what's so interesting about... The Tim Keller situation is, um, having uh, died at, in the 70s, wasn't he? Yeah. Nothing's come out. Have you noticed that? 
So many times nowadays, things come out afterwards about, oh, he, wasn't, you know, he did this and he got this wrong and he hurt this person and this is a disaster. and Nothing bad has come out. And the memorial service all pointed to Jesus, not to him. We need heroes in the faith. And in chapter 11 this morning, we're just going to spend a few minutes now looking at Abraham and Sarah in those verses of 8 to 16. And not only can we learn from just marveling, really, at their faith, but we'll also see this morning three ways in which their faith is pleasing to God. And so we can then apply that to ourselves. And the first way is this. Um, Saving faith is obedient to God. Saving faith is obedient to God. Back in Genesis 12, we saw that Abraham and Sarah, they're childless, They're settled in the town of Haran in a place called, I think it's Ur, Ur, of of the Chaldeans. Now, it's a pagan place, but they seem happy. They've got their extended family there. And then Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And then it says in Hebrews 11, verse 8, Abraham obeyed. And he did it by faith. Look at verse 8 with me. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. So obedient faith is pleasing to God. But I thought what was interesting about the way it's written here is it's done in a very matter-of-fact way. Oh, you know, Abraham was told this, so he just went. Do you think you'd have been as that relaxed in Abraham's situation? If you were asked to leave your extended family, your community, you know, somewhere where you've been for years, and just pick up your stuff and and go, without knowing where, it says in Hebrews, would would you be up for that? I mean, I've noticed, you know, when you talk to people around here, if they're even moving down the road a few miles, then they're looking at commuting time and house prices and transport links and proximity of family and local schools and all that stuff before we go anywhere. Just imagine, I thought about this, just imagine Abraham and Sarah there. It's on the day that they're about to go. The removal men come. They pack up all their stuff. And then the guy comes over and he goes, "Uh, pal, I've got no destination here. Where are we going? There's nothing on the sheet. And Abraham says, well, we're just going to head off towards Canaan over there, and we'll see how we get on. I mean, I can guarantee you that is not a good way of getting a decent quote from a removal company. (laughs) But it is obedience. It is obedience. It's having faith in God wanting the best for you. It's having faith in God's sovereignty over your life. You see, Abraham doesn't know at this point where he's heading but he knows who's taking him there. Would you be up for just following God at that age? See, Abraham's an old man, 75. By then, he'll have stepped down from ministry teams. He probably isn't doing tea and coffee, certainly not on welcome. You know, he could arrive a bit late, couldn't he? Go straight after the service finished. He probably does a, you know, plays a bit more golf in the week. <laughs> Life was okay. And wham, God says, time to move country. The point is that if we have faith, we should be ready to obey God, even when our culture 
looks at us and says, well, I think they're too old to be useful. Or even when we feel, oh, it'd be quite nice to slow down now, not do much. God can use anyone at any age for his work. In fact, when you go back and read Genesis, you'll see that he doesn't really bother with Abraham's first 74 years of life. It's all after. And I hope you find that exciting, not depressing. God can still have a major work in mind for you, even as you get older. So I think sometimes we think a little bit more like Simeon in Luke 2, you know, where Jesus... Um, is brought to him as a baby and he says now you can take me you know we're sort of ready perhaps we're happier with that idea than with the idea of being told okay you're 75 but it's time for new ministry new country off we go (laughs) that sounds like quite hard work doesn't it God calling Abraham and Sarah out of where they were wasn't also just about where they were going by the way It was also about making sure they left where they were. Because he was calling them, God that is, to leave a pagan nation. To be different. And I think that's really something we need to think about. One of the greatest challenges to the church in this country today is that we too are in the middle of a pagan nation. And yet, I think it's a worry that we're so indistinguishable from it most of the time. Are we distinct enough from the people around us? You know, Emmanuel Tolworth as a church, is it distinct enough from the world? You as an individual Christian, are you different from your family and your friends? Abraham was called to leave the country and be different for God. Secondly, second thing Abraham shows us about a faith that pleases God is that saving faith makes us citizens of heaven and therefore strangers here. Look at verse 9 of Hebrews 11. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. See, not only is Abraham setting out to go somewhere else, but he's accepting that he's going to go somewhere where he's a stranger, where he's going to be an alien. He's basically a nomad. And and let's not kid ourselves, because sometimes you get a romantic view of being a nomad. Being a nomad is a tough life. I did one night of camping with my kids when they were younger, and that was enough. (laughs) But the idea at 75, roaming a desert, putting up your tents... You know, putting them down again, moving again, looking for where they're going. And remember, he's in charge because God's spoken to him. So it said in that, I thought it was interesting, that Genesis passage, where it sort of implies he collected people and took them with him. And all of those people are going to be looking at him and saying, where are we going? You're the one who had the message. He's saying, no, we don't know yet. Let's just keep going. Months. Then in Canaan, Genesis, sorry, when they get to Canaan, Genesis 12, verse 7, it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And he must have thought, fantastic, we're here. Three verses later, there's a famine in the land and he has to go to Egypt. Then, which is partly why I wanted to read the Genesis chapter, it gets really messy when he's in Egypt. 
Abraham basically gives his wife away to Pharaoh to make sure he's not hurt. He says, oh, let's um, just tell, her, tell him uh, you're my sister. Of course, there is some truth in that. Abraham and Sarah are half brother and sister. They have the same father. So it's not a complete lie. But the point Hebrews is making is that Abraham has been promised a land that his descendants will inherit. Yet when he gets there, he has to move straight away. They carry on living in tents. There's no home. There's no sort of base. He's a stranger in the world. Even though God blesses him and creates a nation through him, do you know how much of the land Abraham actually owned? None. He said, I'll give, you, I'll give your descendants this land. But he didn't get it. All he owned at the end was a couple of burial plots that he bought for him and his wife. That was it. A faith pleasing to God means we need to recognize that we're strangers, we're exiles in this world because we're citizens of heaven. We're going to a better country. It's so easy for us to get comfortable here. You know, we want to own property. We want to pass it on to our kids. I mean, being comfortable isn't just about property. It's because I'm a surveyor, probably. (laughs) You know, there's a constant battle, isn't there, inside us? Don't you feel this? Between knowing you're a citizen of heaven and you want that assurance and you want to look forward to that. But actually, you don't really want to be a stranger. You really want to fit in. We want to be like the people we spend time with so often. You know, we slightly envy them, don't we? We want to wear the same clothes, drive the same cars, you know, have the ability to spoil the grandchildren or pay for the whole family to go on holiday. We have a deep-seated desire to be like everyone else. Even the Israelites. They're exactly the same in the Bible. What do they say to God? Give us a king. We want a king like everybody else has got a king. It's a disaster. There's a story. um, I just love this story. Um, So I've used it a few times. Hopefully not here before. (laughs) Um, There's a story about James Garfield. He became president of the US. But uh, this is before he became president. It was 1881. He's on a mission to fact-finding mission in the UK and Europe. And he, when he arrived here, he'd obviously heard about um, Spurgeon, the great preacher. And so he goes to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is in the Elephant and Castle, um, on the Sunday evening. He took a whole entourage of Americans with him. And here's an extract from what Spurgeon said that evening. Just, it just is fantastic in terms of what we're talking about here. This is what he, he said. The Christian life should be one of waiting. That is, holding with a loose hand all earthly things. Many travelers are among us today. They are passing from one place to another, viewing diverse countries. But as they're only travelers and are soon to return home, they do not speculate in the businesses of the city of London. They do not attempt to buy large estates and lay them out. They do not try to make gold and silver. They know that they are only strangers and foreigners, and they act as such. They take such interest in the affairs of the country in which they are traveling as may be becoming of those who are not citizens of it. They wish well to those among whom they tarry, which means stay with, for a while. But that is all. 
for they are going home. Therefore, they do not intend to hamper themselves with anything that might make it difficult for them to depart from our shores. Isn't that fantastic? See, they're going home. Someday we're going home to be with God in heaven. Why clog up our lives with stuff that either makes it harder for us to obey God now or makes it harder for us to look forward to being in heaven? We're citizens of heaven and therefore we're strangers here. Third and last um, element of faith. Our faith is in the one who is faithful. Look at verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who has made the promise. It's interesting because Sarah is now being offered to us as someone um, living by faith. And I remember when I read this at first, I thought, well, but I remember Sarah in that bit. She laughs. She doesn't, I don't think she's really trusting, is she? But you see, Hebrews is telling us, so let me take you back to Genesis first. Genesis 18, verse 12, it says this. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So to me, at first glance, Sarah appears a skeptic, not a hero. But Hebrews puts her in the hero category. And Hebrews clarifies to us that Sarah's faith was not in her own body and her age. It all looked impossible biologically. It was in a faithful God. So her laughing was really her um, incredulity, really, the idea that somebody as old as 90, which she was at the, that when she laughs, in her physical state is going to bear a child. She's basically saying, what, me? But Hebrews is saying, even though it's physically impossible, she believed and had a faith in a God that keeps promises. And we can be the same. You know, you can read the Bible, you can look through the Bible, you can see God time after time keeping his promises, and you can trust that God. You can look back at your own life, or each other here, people in New, you know, that you go on the walk with, that we heard the notice given about, or play croquet with. You can look at God at work in their lives and say, that's a God I can have faith in, because I can see him keeping promises. The other lesson here is that we must be patient. So when things don't happen immediately, you think God's made a promise and then, you know, it hasn't taken place. We think, oh, well, that's not really to my timetable. Or um, perhaps I've misunderstood, so we need to change our mind about that. No, be patient. Trust God. We know waiting is not easy. I don't think any of us find waiting very easy. We begin to doubt, did God really say that? Is that really what God is telling me to do? Have I heard him correctly? Or, you know, or perhaps it's just me. I, I want this thing to happen so much that I've persuaded myself he said it. Aren't we just like that? God makes a promise, and this is how I am, and I think, okay, that's great. He's made a promise, but I think he's going to need some help from me to move it along a bit. Sarah was exactly the same. She gave God a few years... But there was no pregnancy. So what does she do? 
she tries to help it along a bit. She says to Abraham, why don't you have a baby with my maidservant, Hagar? And Ishmael's born. Now, we heard that bit in Genesis read about um, them sort of viewing people as people they owned. You know, all the people they'd collected went with them. She clearly thought, Hagar, well, I own her. She's my maidservant, so I'll own the child as well. But it was a disaster. God doesn't need us interfering. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years from when God first promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations to the incident we've just been talking about, where she laughs and then eventually Isaac's born. But look at the result of that patience, that waiting. Hebrews 11 verse 12, and so from this one man, I love this little phrase now, and he as good as dead, (laughs) came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. But then verse 13 reminds us, even though we know God fulfills his promises, you may not always be around to see it. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Abraham and Sarah believed in God's promises, but they didn't see it fulfilled. Yes, they had a son, Isaac. Yes, they saw grandchildren from him, but that is a long way from descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. Abraham was to be the father of the nation of Israel. Did he see that? No. Just says in Hebrews, they were all still living by faith when they died. So those are the three aspects. A faith that is pleasing to God from this passage, you can see that that's a faith that's obedient That's a faith that means you're a citizen of heaven and therefore a stranger in this world. And that's a faith that has faith in the one who is faithful. And those are all amazing things. And we see the conclusion of having that in verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I I thought that was a fascinating phrase because it's the funny way round for us, you know. If you're, I would guess you do it here, but you know, where, where you're talking to each other, you might need to say to each other, I know I need it. Oh, don't, don't forget, when you go into the office tomorrow, or when you see your friends, or when you, you know, you're playing bridge, or, or whatever it is, and somebody says, how was your weekend? You know, be courageous. Say something about Jesus. Say something about church. It's so easy. For, for somebody, as we talked about earlier, for me, if they say, how was your weekend, it is so easy to go to Fulham. But what's the witness there? We need to urge each other not to be ashamed of God, but that's not what this is saying. This is talking about something completely different. You see, this is saying that God is not ashamed to be called our God. It's not performance-based either. It's not saying if you do this and this and this, then God won't be ashamed. You know, he's not, when you mess up, he's not putting his hands on his head and saying, I can't believe that person's one of mine. What does the verse say he's not ashamed of? It says he's not ashamed of us calling him our God. In other words, you know, if we display in our lives this sort of saving faith, 
He's pleased that we call him our God. It's, it's sort of evangelistic, actually. You know, he's, it's a sense of, of wanting people to look at our lives. That's why they've got to be different from the world and say, I want what they have. The problem we have, though, and we know it, is that God would or should be ashamed of us calling him our God if he could see into our hearts, if he could see into our behavior from last week. See, even with this saving faith, even if you did the three things that we've talked about this morning, we know we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. And that's why this passage is so reassuring, because so did Abraham and Sarah. Sarah encouraged Abraham to sleep with Hagar, that they might have a child, because 25 years was too long to wait. Abraham is incredibly weak, goes along with it. Abraham lies, says, you know, let's tell the Pharaoh you're my sister. And then actually in Genesis 20, he says, does the same thing with Abimelech. He gives his wife away basically on both occasions. <laughs> so it would be easy, wouldn't it, to imagine that God would be ashamed to be called the God of Abraham and Sarah. And isn't it the same with us? See, if we aren't perfect, and we know we're not, how can a pure God say he's not ashamed of us? The answer is where we started. Because of Jesus Christ. Because of justification by faith. Because in Christ we have his righteousness. And that is nothing to do with works. And it's nothing to do with the quality of how we live. And it's nothing to do with whether you obey a lot or a little. It's nothing to do with whether you make sacrifices and leave countries or not. And it is all to do with our faith in him. When God looks at you and I, he must see the righteousness of Christ. He must see the perfection of Jesus. And only then can he say, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Let's pray. Father, it is a, a remarkable, wonderful thing that you're not ashamed to be called our God if we are in Christ. Help us to um, love you more. Uh, help us to rely on Jesus for our salvation, for our righteousness. Help us, uh, even though it goes against most of our natures, to fight the urge that we have to do something to add to our righteousness, to create our righteousness. Help us to trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Father, as we look at the examples of Abraham and Sarah, help us to be obedient. Help us not to dismiss the idea of you working in our lives in a great way just because we're aging. Help us to be strangers in this world that we won't clog our lives up with so much stuff that either we have no time for you or we don't want to look forward to a heaven Father we want to um, uh, love Jesus encourage each other as, as in this church to keep walking with him that you might help us to 
keep this faith um, that you've given us that we might uh, walk closely with you in our lives and live a faith that, that shouts out to the world around us. Help us to be distinct and different in this church and in our individual lives. And Lord, we thank you that if we believe in Jesus, you are not ashamed to be called our God. In Jesus' name, amen.